a health psychologist by training. Dr. Margaret Hay has worked in health professional education for the past two decades in both curriculum governance and teaching roles. She is the inaugural head of the Monash Center for Professional Development and Monash Online Education in the portfolio of the Deputy Vice Chancellor at Monash University. Prior to this, she was inaugural director of the Professional and Continuing Education and the inaugural director of the Monash Institute for Health and Clinical Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences. She has supervised to completion 19 doctoral research projects and has been thrice nominated for supervisor awards and is currently supervising a range of PhD and master's projects in health professions education, having transitioned from her research in health psychology. She is Australian and spent some time studying in the U.S., so we compared the medical education systems of both countries and we discussed the strengths and weaknesses. We also discussed what the admissions process is really designed to select for, why diversity of educational backgrounds leads to better outcomes, why medical education should follow students' leads rather than vice versa, and how to teach without making the learner feel like garbage, which we all felt at some point. Dr. Hay is a co-opted member of the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society Educational Committee and has taught several Harvard Macy Institute courses in Boston and Harvard Partners International courses for the National Health Group Singapore. She is a member of the Course Steering Committee for the Harvard Medical School Master's in Medical Education degree. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Margaret Hay, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me, Brad. I really appreciate it. So what is your origin story? How did you end up getting into medical education, education? Yes, well, thank you for asking me that. Um, to be honest, it was it was a good opportunity to reflect on, on, on this and my journey because it wasn't anything I planned to do. Um, I, I was appointed as a, a level B lecturer um, more than 20 years ago at Monash and I was teaching in psychology. And at that point, all academics had to do a a graduate certificate, so a graduate degree in education, um, because in Australia, at least, university academics don't have to have any formal training or didn't have to have any formal training. So um, there were two options. One was a higher education sort of standard course, and another was a course specifically for education in the health professions. And of course, being a psychologist and teaching in, in the health professions and being in the medical school, I chose, I chose that one. Um, and to be honest, it changed my life. I, I found my people. I, I I learned a lot about education, but it was it was specific to to medical and health professions education, and it was just all the things that through my psychology training I wish I had had, and I wish I had known. Um, you know, I was glad I got an opportunity to know that coming in. So, you know, it was not just about um, you know curriculum design and assessments and those sorts of things, but it was really much very much focused on the uniqueness that is health professions education which is as much around behavioural aspects as it is around knowledge and, and skills. Um, so that started my journey. And because I did that degree, um, I was very quickly put into year four of the of our medical undergraduate medical training, which was psychiatry, because I was a psychologist, brand new course, first year of implementation and no exams. So um, that what I learned in, in that in that course was was very helpful. Um, and but I had really had to hit the ground running. So 
to be honest. And that was that sort of much has been my experience in in medical education ever since. You you just get put into a role um, and you immediately have to hit the ground running. Um, generally, there's a little bit of a crisis, but um, but you know, thank thank goodness I had the skills, the formal skills to do that. So so that's the first part. Um, do you have any questions about about that? Because I can I can keep going. No, please please continue. Okay, so um, so then at Monash, which is in in Australia, um, I I was then moved around to various parts of the the medical curriculum. So it it, it seemed to be that if there was an area that needed some work and um, and sort of was getting a little bit behind, I was given the job to to sort of work on that and 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 bring it into the modern day. So and it was so it was always wonderfully challenging, um, but but also working with people in a very enthusiastic way. So. Um, after the psychiatry experience, I then um, worked in the, our on-campus years, so years one and two of our medical course, um, which we have we had campuses and we have still campuses in Malaysia, all around Australia, um, and so it was a whole curriculum renewal, um, bringing it all back, you know, had it all sort of disintegrated, bringing it all back together, working with our colleagues across uh, Malaysia and and also in the various areas in in Australia. Um, and then after that, um, I worked in assessment. So I was director of assessment for the whole of our medical courses. And I did that for a number of years, brought in some innovations. And then um, I ended my career in, in medical education at the undergrad level as, as in, in selection and admissions. So I did that um, for, for a number of years. Um, and all of this is, is part of medical education. So we often think of medical education as just what the students learn, but you know, selection right through to the education and right, right, you know, you know, back out now into professional development education, um, it's it's just been a, a whole journey. So so that's been my journey in, in Australia. Okay, so now th at this point, actually, if we could if we could take a pause because we'll get we'll get to the American uh, part of your journey in a little bit. Um, but you mentioned two things that I want to explore a little bit and. Uh, given how things are going so far, I'm not even sure we're going to be able to get to, to the questions that I had planned. Um, cause, so, so one thing that you had mentioned was when when the curriculum uh, was getting a little old, a little stale, it needed to be updated, right? So my thought is, how do you know, right? Because just medical knowledge is exploding, and we can't expect the students to know, you know, being on the cutting be on the cutting edge of everything. So how do we know when it's time to update the curriculum or take something out of the curriculum or add something to the curriculum? Like, how do you, it's, it sounds like it's a very broad question. I apologize, but you know, no, it's a where very do you good even start? It's a very good question and it's a very important question. And there's a couple of elements to it. So, so medical education has the benefit of having a huge literature. So it's very easy to keep up with what's going on around the world and who, you know, I mean, I always look to often the Canadians, um, they seem to be doing a, a lot of work in leading the way. And so, you know, things like problem-based learning, now we're into, you know, um, EPAs and all these things that, that, that come out. Um, it, it's there's always an evidence base to help you make a decision whether that is something that we should, you know, in our institute should be investing in um, or waiting until there's more information and so on. So, so the, the, the literature that drives medical education is vast. And it's and it's accessible. So that's one point. The other point is, and to me, the most important is, I listen to the students because you know they know they know what they want, and they know when things are, are out of date. Because you know they're they're not just looking at their medical 
textbooks and, you know, they're, they're, they're out there learning from in a whole range of different ways. And so they're very good at, at you know, alerting us to when things are sort of maybe not meeting their needs um, as, as learners. And we've certainly seen that through the COVID pandemic and medical education has been very slow to, to use technology in the ways that students, you know, have wanted to use it. Um, and so a bunch of medical students uh, at Harvard in the Harvard Innovation Lab actually developed a, a whole different way of, of using technology for, for teaching, um, which was very handy when, when COVID came along. So the students themselves are saying, you know, this is old fashioned way of learning. We want to learn in these ways. And, and if we don't do that, they'll, they'll do it themselves. So when we undertook those, the, any curriculum renewal, I've, I've spoke to a lot of people, you know, colleagues around the world. I did a lot of work in the literature, then also did consulting internally to see whether this is thing, something that we think we would get engagement in, including the students in that, um, and, you know, can, do we have the resources, of course, to do that. So, so it was a range of things like we had a horizontal curriculum that had sort of, you know, got out of, out of whack, so we had to realign that. That's the easy part, but bringing in new ways of, of doing things is is actually a little bit more challenging, but it's also very exciting, and it's it's a great way to get people engaged and excited in 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 the medical education work. I have found that. So, what's an example of something that came out of what did, what did you call it, the Harvard Innovation Lab? Yeah, so um, Vish Panwal Panwali, his um, medical student was well, not he was a medical student. He's now a um, an, an emergency doctor. Um, him and a bunch of friends developed. It was called Sophia.ai, which was basically a learning management platform where um, you could track the students, the students could track themselves, lots of back-end learning analytics, all based on spaced education, you know, and how we learn, you know, the make it stick type approach, so all empirically based. Um, and and the idea there is that, you, you know, all of the ologies and all the knowledge that you need, you can get that online, right? And that means that you're then using time with patients, time whether they be simulated or real, time with with you know the more senior consultants and and, and practitioners who you want to learn from. You're, you're really learning sort of the skills that you can't get from YouTube books and any other way. So so it makes that time more valuable for both the trainee and and, and the educator. Um, but it also is appealing to the way that the students these days want to learn. So they're more motivated to learn. Um, but once COVID hit. That was re they sort of reinvented it as so so work it's called so it's basically a virtual environment where medical students and now it's branching out to other other courses but medical students can learn together but also socialize together so they're learning um, they've got all the materials but they can order uber eats they can you know have champagne <laughs> so so it's a virtual environment but they're learning and socializing together and they've just got millions of dollars of investment now um, um, to build that. So, you know, this, this is something that came out of medical students themselves saying, you know, we, we, we want to, we want to learn differently. And, you know, if we will build, we'll build it ourselves. And it's been very, very popular. So to me, wow. that's the sort of innovations that are coming. AR and VR, uh, augmented reality and virtual reality are really opening up incredible opportunities for medical education and other any any education that involves actually you know skills skills based so that when you actually get to patients and consultants that time and you know time is something that always comes up is used in really meaningful ways so, so I, I think that's where the revolution is coming and and mostly the current educators are not trained 
to, to for that actually. And it sounds great for, for like procedures as well. Like if you're an anesthesiologist, right. And, Oh, I've never intubated someone before, but I've done it 400 times in the lab. Right. So it is very different from, Oh, I've never done this before. Correct. And that's just the end of the statement. So, yep. um, you know, whether it's high fidelity or low fidelity, and I'm sure it's all going to be going to be evolving. It's yeah, a very different animal. If you've actually, you know, practiced the skills and gotten positive and negative feedback and all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was something else that you mentioned um, earlier about candidate selection. And I hadn't even thought that that would be something, you know, we would be talking about today, but I hate, I'd hate, I hate to miss an opportunity to talk about something like this because anytime I've read anything about candidate selection, it's more like exam scores don't predict good doctors, you know, and this doesn't predict, and this doesn't, this, this is all negative. So candidate selection, how, what so does he, predict? And how do you even identify, you know, how do you even define what a good doctor is? Is it like a skilled surgeon or someone with a moral compass or someone that remembers, you know, every step of Krebs cycle? Right. How's what's what? Where, how do we even start with good? And I'm sorry that this went in so many directions, but no, 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 that, that's good. And look, selection again, there's a huge body of literature on this. Um, and and you know, selection does not necessarily predict performance in um exam. I mean, it, it does, but it you know, there's it, there's way more of the variance not not understood than there is understood. But I don't think the purpose of selection is to predict performance, it's to, it's to predict candidates who will get through the training, right? So to me. The success of selection is is the graduates who graduate successfully, and and of course for the most part, most, well certainly in our country, ninety five or six percent do. So in that sense, selection is is very good. I think where selection is, it could be doing a lot more is in diversity. So you know we're still when I was I mean I was leading assessment and we had four to five thousand applicants for two hundred and forty two positions. You know, so I mean, you can just draw a line at the top. So these other, you know, multiple mini interviews, situational judgment tests, those sorts of things, you know, allow you to have more of a, a diverse view of the applicants and therefore the, the students and the graduates that you want. So you're looking at more personal characteristics. Um, but I still think we could do a, a, a lot more um, in selection because at the moment in Australia, you know, we have, well, in, in a lot of places, we have a chronic shortage of doctors willing to work in rural areas. So, in, you know, we are, we are still selecting urban specialists and we're actually screening out in the selection process the very people who are more likely to go and work in rural areas where there is a, is a significant need. So, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done there where we just say it's not, you know, not all about just getting <clears throat> the high performers. It's actually about, you know, because you can, you, when I say, you know, if I say it's not just about the high performers, well, I'm talking about not, you know, the 99th percentile, maybe we can go down to the 97th percentile and, and actually still have, have people who are more willing and more likely to go, you know. Without a, significant, without a significant drop in quality, right? What's the difference well, between we, the 99th and the 97th percentile, right? It's got to be minimal. Absolutely. We, but, you know, <clears> we, we have students from First Nations and, and significantly disadvantaged um, cohorts who come in on, you know, the 80th percentile and they do very well. Yeah, you know, I mean... Admissions is based on the admission scores are based on the popularity of the course. They're not based on actually what you need to survive or get through that course. So what medicine is well. So um, so in in Australia anyway, 
the 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 scores that are that are required to get into a degree are based on the popularity of that degree. So the more the more people who want to do that degree, the higher the score because you have more of a pool to, to choose from. It's not it's not based on what you need to succeed. And <laughs> so if we did that, would, yeah, right, because then you'd catch a lot more. You'd have a lot more candidates than spots to fill if it was, if it was based on that. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So selection to, selection is the first and most important tests that that doctors do because that's what gets you into the training in the first place. Yeah, yeah the American stuff. system probably does that very well, right? Can you make it through the material? Because it is, you know, you've got to take all of these undergrad courses and you've got to make sure your GPA is high enough. You've got to make sure. So it's like test, 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 tests. So if you're good at taking tests, you will be able to then go on to medical school where you have to take even more tests, but then you're. But you know, a good doctor, yes. the question. I mean, is that, you know, and I mean, we have, so our, the difference in our system is, is we have people coming straight from high school. Some of them are 16 years old. We have, you know, they do a five year course and we've always done that. It's a UK model. It's, a, it's the Australian model. Um, so, our, so our education is, sh is significantly shorter than yours, and we're still graduating doctors who are highly competent in what they do, and then they do the three junior doctor years, and then they go into their specialty training. So it's still a long journey. We also have the your model postgraduate a, a degree followed by then you know a postgraduate degree in medicine, which is just one year shorter. But but what we have now is almost exclusively those people have biomedical science backgrounds. So we're just extending their their training for three years. It's not the diversity that you have in America by any means. I mean, I, the, the, you know, the friends and colleagues that I have met, the diversity of backgrounds that they've come from into medicine is unbelievable. And, and we just don't have that. And I think that's a loss for us. Well, I think it's just, it's a product of our system asking people to make the decision later rather than sooner. And I've never heard someone describe the American medical system as being diverse before. I think this is a, this is a first for me, but you're talking about diversity of education. So you have coming someone coming in from an engineering school, someone coming up from a, a business school, someone coming in with an art history degree. That's what you're, you're talking about. Just to clarify, you're not talking about like diversity, equity, inclusion of their, uh, you know, ethnic race and ethnicity. Oh. We're not talking about that. No. You know, just diversity. Yeah. So I think we have a long way to go in both our countries in regard to that. Yeah. The diversity and the inclusion, um, for sure. Yeah. So, so the selection part is often overlooked, but it's it's absolutely essential and a really important part of medical education because that's where it all begins. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's contrast our our systems a little bit. So again, a very broad question, but you know, what would you say are the strengths and weaknesses of each? system as it compares to the other of the australian uh education system as opposed to the u.s health education system or medical well i think as we just discussed the, the diversity of backgrounds that you have coming in i think is is a significant strength but i also think it's, it's an ex, a strength for us to have the school lever course the, the school lever program because we are actually having a shorter period of time for training and you know around the world people are calling for shorter times you know the you know, the amount of time it takes to be a health profession, whether it's a psychologist, a physiotherapist, a physical therapist, a medical doctor, a nurse these days, um, it's it's just increasing and we, you know, we can't afford that. And that's really come home, you know, through COVID where we've had mass resignations, particularly in, in nurses and particularly in intensive care nurses that take eight years to train. You can't just all of a sudden say, oh, we're going to fix that, we'll just have more. 
So, so that so length of training, I think, you know, is, is an advantage for us. Um, we don't have a licensing exam. We don't have a USMLA, which I actually think is, a, is an advantage for us because you don't have all that effort in just focusing on passing the licensing exam where we have the universities focusing on a much more broader range of competencies. As I know that, that, you know, obviously that's what all the graduates have, but it just takes off that focus on, you know, essentially the, the energy that goes into passing those licensing exams. Yeah, teaching um, to be a doctor instead of teaching to the test. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so, you know, summative assessment is actually being questioned now, even, even in, in undergrad training, um, you know, just teaching for passing tests, um, and recall that, you know, as you talked about before we started, that idea of just learning and then you, you know, you pass a test and then you forget to these more, you know, empirically based learning processes like spaced education, you know, making it stick type approach, um, which is really around, you know, reflection time and, and formative assessment and feedback so that you, you know, when you need that information, it's there as opposed to, oh, I know I did it for an exam, but I've forgotten. Um, this, this is this is the forward movement, I think, of, of where medical education and all education is, is going. And technology really helps there, really helps. And you said spaced education. That actually, that's something that we that we've talked about on the show a long time ago with uh, Chase DeMarco, who's I'm not sure where he is in his training right now. He's another podcaster. He calls himself the medical nemonist, like mnemonic. Um, and what what he said was, you know, it's more likely to be sticky if you learn something on, say, Monday and then again on Wednesday and then maybe the following Friday. So like 10 days later. So you're you're getting it at irregular spaced intervals. I just want to clarify. That's what you're referring to. Correct. That, yeah, so it's, it's spaced in that it's it's irregular interviews. So the, the interval. So the idea is that just just as information is starting to be forgotten, it's reinforced. But the other important part of this, though, is that it, it, it's re you, you keep. So, for example, in a in a quiz, you'll you'll keep you'll ask questions that you that you got right at least three more times, and then they're retired. But the questions that you haven't answered, you, they keep repeating and, until you actually get them right. So, you know, Duolingo to learn a language. A lot of the apps now, learning apps, are based on these principles. So you're basically interrupting the forgetting curve. And by doing that, you're, you're translating, translating that into solid memory, into consolidated memory. And that's really why technology is so helpful. Because my current certification, my in order to be board certified in otolaryngology, which is what I am in the United States, Previously, every 10 years, we'd have to take a test in order to get recertified. Well, now they've thrown that out. And what I do is I do these quarterly assessments. And if I get a question wrong, they bring it up again. And so I, I you know, it, it's, it sounds like they're teaching me without me realizing that that's what I'm doing. So they identify things that are important for, for us to know. And they're asking us if we know it, great. And if we don't know it, they bring it up again and again and again and again. So um, and it's, it's, yep. it's an interesting philosophical difference because, you know, a lot of our education and feedback focuses on what we did, you know, what we did well and we got those, you know, we got, you know, 85% on the exam. We don't really care about the part that we didn't get. This is all focusing on what you don't know. That's where the focus is. Which seems so, like that's the, that's the point of a test to begin with. If my six-year-old takes a math test and he gets a question wrong, that's what I need to know. I need to know what he got wrong so we can go over it again instead of just like celebrating the questions right. Yeah. Correct. So, so it, you know, it's really focusing on making sure that we have that comprehensive knowledge because, 
you know, in you know, it may be different now, but when you do an exam and you know what you get wrong, um, you, half the time you don't even you don't even have access to which parts you didn't get wrong, or which part you know you know you, you know which ones you got right. You, you, it's very hard to actually improve on that knowledge. So th this is a great way of doing that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay, so speaking of getting questions wrong, so something that happened all throughout my training and is currently happening through lots of people's training is you'll be on say on ward rounds and this is just an example i don't want to go into you know the ins and outs of ward rounds just just yet but um you know maybe by the socratic method where you're, you're pimping them it used to be called still called um and when you get a question wrong you end up feeling like garbage like that happened so many times it happened so many times during my training and it happened so many times to other people now so as it now that I'm in the the tables are turned and I sometimes have students with me, how do I make sure I'm teaching a student like when they get something wrong? How do I teach them without making them feel like garbage about it? So, um, Brad, I mean you can reflect on your own experiences <clears throat> with that way of learning. Um, it, it's not motivating, it does, and, and, and in fact, often you, it puts you in a sense of of stress. So you, you actually don't learn anything from that moment on. So there's a lot of work being done now, and it's going to be it's going to be demanded in 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 health professions, education, and also in health practice, healthcare practice. This whole notion of psychological safety, where you actually create an environment where it is okay to ask questions um, and and respond to questions and actually get them wrong. Now it might not be by the bedside where that's the best to happen, but you know that idea of you know in front of a, a patient and firing questions. I mean, really. No, I, I, to me, that's a very old-fashioned way of, of learning. This, you know, <clears throat> have the do, do this sort of question and answer either before you're at, you're, you're in front of the patient, where you can uh, you know, go back and forth, and and then and then in the moment with the patient, there's actually questions that would didn't come up because you're in the real situation now, but you're better equipped to answer than respond to them. So, no, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the term psychological safety, Amy Edmondson's work. We talk about this all the time now particularly because the current generation expect it. They expect more from their leaders. They don't, they don't respond to hierarchy anymore. They're just different people. And, and, and they have much higher expectations of, of their leaders and how their, their leaders treat them. And so this idea that you, they can't be part of their own learning journey and be, be able to communicate and, and put things out there for discussion and maybe, maybe they're wrong without being cut down is very old-fashioned. Um, and if someone says something, you know, that isn't quite right, then, you know, you, 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 your response can be, well, that's not right. Or your response can be to explore that response because it can't be entirely wrong. And, and, and or even to question why, why that was the response, you know, where, what, what, what was the rationale for that response? And then in that discussion, you can bring them to actually a different rationale for what would be the correct response. Okay. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? Did I answer yeah, your question? Yeah, it does. It does. You're putting you're putting a lot more effort into instead of it just being the right or the wrong answer, kind of the exploring the thought process behind. Let's take a step back. How did you arrive at that answer? OK, well, this part of it was correct, but this part of it, let's try and steer you in a different direction. So it sounds more like you are you've identified that they didn't quite get there and then you're helping them to get there instead right. of just squashing them, which was what we did before. And isn't that and, how you practice medicine, though, as well? You know, it's it's. You know, there are times when it's black and white, but there are times when it isn't, right? Yeah. And so we're also teaching them thought processes that, oh, I went down that path, but actually 
you know, I should have thought of this. So that's a learning. That's more learning. And it's very important learning. And you said that the students expect it now. And, you know, in some ways, people might think of that as a very, like, entitled way to be. We, we expect you to teach us this way. But I, th I think what it really is is, no, if you are in medical education and you're responsible for training the next generation of doctors, you're either invested enough to use the latest innovations in learning in order to help them the most to become the best doctors they can be, or you're just not invested enough to know that stuff. And so they are entitled to someone who is invested enough to know what works and what doesn't. I, absolutely. And I, I think it's very entitled <clears throat> of us to say, I learned like this, and therefore you learn like this, because that's why medical education does not innovate very quickly. It innovates very slowly and has been. And, and COVID moved us forward, but I can already see us going back to, to where we were. So, you know, the fact that we innovated so quickly and so collegially during COVID, hierarchies went out the window um, because we had to, shows that we can do it. We absolutely can do it. But I can see us now, you know, going back to the traditional way. So I, I would say that it's the, it's the students who are entitled to get the education they need to learn how to be a practitioner in this world. And that's probably not where their current train, you know, their current consultants and senior people have, have come from. And particularly, I'll go a little bit off track here, but this is a really important point. Um, I was reading a, a report by Microsoft around, they, they interviewed a whole bunch of hospital CEOs and they were from various countries around the world. And all of those CEOs had, had you know, their, their major agenda was technology, to increase technology in the hospital. But yet only 30% of them had any investment in training the people to use those technologies, including the, the health practitioners. So right there is a crisis. You're bringing in technology and you're not training the people who have to use it or teach others to use it how to use it. They're not even thinking about that. So that just now, you know, I know personally, you know, so doctors who are in sort of, you know, in their later years who are, who are ending their, their, their practices now because they can't keep up with the technology. But they're lot, they're, they are major loss, losses to the profession. So, you know, we, we sort of, we, we can't ignore technology. We have to start embracing it and learning how to use it and understand it because that's what our learners, they're ahead of us now. You know, this was a former dean saying to me, the registrars are coming in and getting frustrated with him because he doesn't know the passwords of, you know, four different four different systems that he now has to work with. And, um, you know, because in his day, he sat down with a bunch of paper and just worked through, through the case, the patient and put it all together. Now he's got to navigate four different systems. So, you know, it's a different world and we, oh, we yeah. need to prepare our students for that world. My medical school was trying to push the envelope by getting us all to buy Palm Pilots at the beginning of uh, medical school. So we all bought Palm Pilots and, and, yeah, and, and used them. <laughs> and now, where's the technology now? Where's the Palm Pilot is in, in a garbage somewhere far away. So, but this is how quickly, you know, I had a Palm Pilot too. I was one of the first um, people in Australia to have one. Um, and, you know, they literally, the, the iPhone killed them. So, but, you know, that's how quickly technology changes. So you can't keep up with the technology itself, but you can keep up with how it works and, and learn skills generalised to, to, you know, other products when they come. But we can't ignore it. 
So let's say you had a room full of seasoned attendings, and I'm not sure what. So what's the Australian term for attending? Is it regist registrar? Yeah. Registrar. So you had a room full of seasoned attendings, right? Like not in the, in the not ready to retire, like the the who you just mentioned, but you know maybe in the middle middle of their career. What would you want them to know to help them be better teachers? Like whether whether they're giving a lecture or they are um, leading ward rounds or they've got a student with them during office hours, really in any of those, what's like some overarching pearl that you would want them to know to help them be the best teacher they can be? Well, first of all, I would encourage them to reflect on their own training and what, and what was good and worked for them and, and really enabled their learning and what did not. Because, you know, it should, learning to be a doctor shouldn't be the test of survival that it is, right? So just to reflect on their own experiences, because often we just, even, you know, unconsciously, most of, the, most of our decisions, in fact, all of our decisions are based on things we already know, okay? So it's very hard to break that cycle. So if we reflect back on what, what worked for us, what we found very productive and what we struggled with in a really honest way and say, okay, I don't want my students to, to, to experience that, and then work out ways that that can be, you know, changed for, for their students. I'd also encourage them to take time. I mean, you know, I, I truly believe that the current situation in, in the hospital systems, in certainly in developed countries like Australia and America, if we were to just reduce the capacity to 80%, that would free up so much of everybody's time to do a better job at whatever their job is, right? So when you're running at 98% and everybody is, at, is stretched and then you get a global pandemic on top of that and we already have burnout and stress and in our case, unfortunately, suicide rates in young doctors, this is terrible, right? So just by reducing to 80% capacity, we would open up time for doing these really important things that don't seem to, to, to you know, be a priority right now. Um, you know, and it's just, and it and it really is that easy to fix it. So the the system, it's the system part, and then the attitude toward their student part. We're very very strong on patient safety, but we haven't been strong enough on student and healthcare worker safety, and 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 we've just let the ball drop on that, and and we can't do that anymore. So I would encourage everyone to to look at their students as future colleagues, as people that matter as people that are doing their best to, to be the best that, that, you know, healthcare worker that they can be. And, and, and as opposed to, you know, someone who's annoying, I haven't got time and I'm, I'm supposed to be doing this and, you know, uh, and yes, what do you want? You know, all of those subtle and unsubtle cues that say, yes, you don't matter. So just make them matter because the learning will happen. You know, you, you, you know we always say you can put medical students anywhere and they will learn. But, but what we bring is, is the opportunity to share experiences and to make them feel valued and to be actually looking forward to their career as opposed to, you know, being stressed and burnt out and feeling inadequate and all of those things. So it's an attitude set that I think needs to change. Probably not the answer you're expecting, but. No, no, but it ties back into the psychological safety that you were talking about. Like if, you, if you're not in a psychologically safe situation, you're not going to learn. 
right? No, you're not going to remember. You're going to be your your cortisol is going to be up. Your dander is going to be up, and you're you're just going to stop learning. But if you're in a psychologically safe space, and that's what it sounds like you're you're saying here, like make sure that the space that your student that your learner is in is a psychologically safe space, and they will learn. They yeah. will learn. So the priority here is making sure that they feel valued, appreciated, and safe, and they will learn. They will learn. Now, just to clarify, psychological safety isn't, you know, everyone sitting around hugging each other and, you know, only ever being nice. That's not what it is. It's about having that can be very difficult discussions but in a respectful way. So, you know, you can give feedback that's needed, but the idea is you do it in a respectful way that you listen and you're open and, you know, it's, it's and that therefore it's actually heard. So it's yeah. not this idea that everyone just loves each other. It's actually just really around being respectful and, you know, so the person can learn and we all can learn from, from experiences where we need to. Yes, that is not the direction I was expecting you to take it with, but, or, or take it to, but, but nonetheless, I mean, it's for a question that was that broad, I, I think you made, you, you came out with some brass tax advice that we can really all bring to the table tomorrow to make it a, a better situation for, for everybody. Look, Brad, I always say kindness is free. And, 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 but the impact that that kindness has on others is enormous. So it's something that you can do tomorrow um, and, and just change someone's experience of an event in a positive way. And then they go and do that. You know, because that's not what we're modeling right now. You know, we're modeling unkindness. Yeah. It's, the kindness is there in pockets, but overall, it's an exception rather than a rule. Exactly. And it should yeah. be the rule. And then the exception becomes, you know, such a shock and, and not appropriate. Yeah. So, yeah, it, that, to me, this is that, that, that small change will make enormous impact in so many other ways. Well, thank you for the kindness of coming on the podcast and talking to us about educate medical education education. Um, so, where, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm online. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Margaret Hay on LinkedIn is probably. I am on. I am on Twitter, but I confess I go in and out of Twitter depending on how I feel. Um, at Margaret Hay, but mostly LinkedIn is is where I am in social media. Um, but yeah, I'm. I have lots of friends in America. We never got to talk about the Harvard Macy Institute, but I'm sure others will talk about that. But that, is, that has been a life-changing event for, for me just to have a whole network of, of people around the world. Um, and that's how I know you. You know, you know Eric Gantworker, who's my friend, and we met through Harvard Macy. So getting involved in a, in a network like that is really important for educators. So I, I would well, encourage. Eric's going to be coming back on the show to talk more about education. And so I will make sure that we focus a lot on that during uh, during that interview. That interview is coming up in a couple of weeks. So Dr. Margaret Hay, thank you so much for your time. I This has been a fantastic interview. Well, thank you, Bradley. I really appreciate it. And it's lovely to meet you as well. Great, great work on the podcast. Thank you. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.